Thank you for choosing OECD Podcast. Welcome to OECD Podcast. I'm Clara Young, and I'm here with Yanis Varoufakis, who is an economist. And for five months in 2015, he was the finance minister of Greece. So welcome, Mr. Varoufakis. Hello. My first question is, eight years ago, Greece had its first bailout, and it's been a rocky time. Three bailouts, $300 billion in debt, but Greece re-emerged at the end of August, and though shaky, admittedly, uh, there is a projected growth of 1.9% of its GDP, and there is foreign investment pouring back in again, um, some 850 million euros, according to the Bank of Greece. So what's your assessment of where Greece is at now, and was austerity or some form of it the needed medicine? Well, there is uh, the propaganda and there is the reality. You just stated or restated the official version, the propaganda as I call it. Now let me tell you about the grim reality. Greece will go down in history, in the history of economics, as the most spectacular failure of any consolidation program. Not only has austerity not worked, but it has proven that it can never work. And Greece is a spectacular example of why it can't. No insolvency has ever been overcome by means of the larger loan in human history, which comes with austerity streaks and touch that collapse uh, the incomes from which uh, the old and the new loans must be repaid. As for the recovery, there is no recovery. You mentioned uh, Some investment. GDP growth. And you, investment. you mentioned there is no GDP growth in value-added terms. In value-added terms, GDP has been declining. If you, in other words, if you take the, the amount of taxation out of uh, GDP, you will see that uh, in value-added terms, GDP continues to fall for the 10th consecutive year. The rumors that unemployment uh, is falling are correct, but it's only falling because Greeks are leaving Greece to the tune of it's ten to 15,000 a month. I see. Instead of celebrating, we should be mourning the fact that we're losing our younger, better educated men and women to uh, various economies that will make use of the skills that the Greek society has paid good money to impart to them. There is no exit from any bailout package. Now we have a fourth bailout package. They just decided not to call it bailout. What is a bailout? Let's be specific. A Eurozone bailout consists of two dimensions. One is the creditors are giving you the financial facility by which they allow you to pretend that you're repaying your debt. And the second dimension these are the conditions, is austerity. This combination of a financial facility so that the Greek state can pretend to repay its debt uh, took the form in the first three bailouts of money. So they give you money to give it back to them. Now we have a new financial facility where they don't give you more money. Actually, they did. It's a 25 billion cushion, as they call it, that has been provided to the Greek state to, to pretend that it's repaying its debt up until 2021. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, that financial facility has been extended to 2032 by effectively waiving all repayments until 2032. But of course, all those repayments will have to be made right. after 2032 with interest. Okay, so that's another financial facilitation. The Greek state is not capable of financing itself in the markets. So that is exactly as it was since 2010, exactly as it was. The second part, austerity, we have already agreed to... Th- the most vicious and long-term 
austerity plan from today to 2060 in the history of the world. 3.5% primary surplus until 2022 and 2.2% after that. No country in the history of capitalism has ever achieved that target. So, you see, we have entered a fourth bailout, which now extends our bankruptcy into 2060 and uh, takes austerity much further. You mentioned uh, foreign direct investment. Allow me to say that there is no foreign direct investment, unless, of course, it depends on how you count it. When somebody comes to Greece to buy an empty flat, that is not investment. It could be a very good speculative move by the person who does it, but it creates absolutely no value added and it doesn't create any jobs. So there, there is no investment into productive capacity. What there is is money that comes in for speculative purposes. They come in, for instance, to buy non-performing loans. Uh, this is a zero-sum game from an economic point of view. You can only talk about investment that can create the semblance of growth if it goes into creating jobs, if it goes into creating capital goods, if it goes into creating buildings, not just buying them. But why is Greece the exception? I mean, Portugal, Ireland, Cyprus, Italy, they went through austerity programs as well, and they have reemerged again, I would say, for some countries, quite shakily. But they are embarking on repaying the debt. If you suck a little bit of blood out of a human patient, and you suck huge quantities of blood out of a human patient, you get two very different results. To answer your question directly, in Greece, we had the largest amount of austerity, The result was a constant shrinking of our tax revenues, constant shrinking. Every year, our tax revenues go down. Why? Because GDP has been going down. And a constant increase in our debt as a percentage of our income. So austerity doesn't work. Uh, it never works and it can't work until and unless you have different forms of aggregate demand that are being injected into the economy. So let me give you an example. When austerity was practiced in Germany in the 1990s, you had a period of increasing foreign direct investment into industry and increased investment into producing things. And at the same time, so while the private sector was spending more, the state sector was spending less. Overall, income was going up and that works. But that was not austerity, because the purpose of doing that was not to reduce public debt. If you're trying to reduce public debt during a crisis through austerity, you are guaranteed to fail. And nobody has succeeded. Look at Cyprus. Look at Portugal. Look at Ireland. Look at Greece. Our debt ratio is greater than ever as a result of austerity. Especially when you have free-falling private expenditure, if you add massive cuts to public expenditure, the sum of the two are GDP. So it is bound to fail, and Greece is a perfect case where it has failed. And now the Greek economy is in a state of coma. You mentioned 1.7% GDP growth rate. You happen to work for the OECD. Look it up. Has there ever been such a ridiculously low growth rate or projection of growth rate? It's not even growth rate. It's projection of growth rate after such a massive collapse. And if you take out of that, as I said before, the amount of taxation that is being taken out of the circular flow of income, there is absolutely no growth. We have no growth in Greece and we can't have any growth while we have a bankrupt state, bankrupt banks, bankrupt companies and bankrupt families. So what do you feel is the solution then? What could have been done to deal with the imminent collapse of Eurozone countries. Well, and then three years ago, when I was in this building, I gave my blueprint of what needs to happen. So it's all here within your building. 
it's on record, but let me tell you briefly what it is. First thing we need is to reduce tax rates uh, from the ridiculous level of VAT of 24% to 18%. Secondly, uh, reverse the ridiculous, the catastrophic, poisonous law which forces companies to prepay next year's projected tax, corporate tax, this year, 100% of it, uh, which is what you do to a country if you want to destroy it. And this was a law that was passed after I resigned the finance ministry. It was one of the terms for the third bailout. Uh, thirdly, what you need to do is you need to create a public company that uh, manages non-performing loans of the banking sector. What they're doing now, which is to sell off to private funds the NPLs, that are now totally wrecking the banking system is a recipe for perpetuating the banking crisis and for creating serious social problems in Greece with foreclosures and evictions. We also need a very serious uh, rethink regarding privatization. We keep selling for peanuts important companies, companies that uh, in the end end up with buyers that can't even afford to invest in them. So let me give you a very simple example of a crime against logic that was perpetrated Recently, we sold Greek railways for 43 million. million. Even the headquarters of the Greek railway company ought to be worth more. And we sold it to a bankrupt Italian company that is not investing anything in it. Uh, this is not what you should be doing in order to bring about recovery. Either sell it to somebody who has the money to invest and has a contractual agreement with you that they will invest, or create an investment bank and use this asset as collateral in order to borrow yourself internationally and then pour the money into investments to improve your railways. These are very, very straightforward things. I've outlined them in 2015. Unfortunately, the creditors were not interested because we were negotiating with creditors that didn't want their money back. They just wanted to make Greece an example of Greece so that the, the French, the Uh, the Spaniards, the Italians would not vote their own way. Let's get to the creditors, and I'm going to pull the camera back a little bit. It seems to me that your bigger message is that the financialization has dominated civil society. I get the feeling that your message is that what happened to Greece or what's happening to Greece is also in a certain way what's happening to all of us. Well, Greece should not be important enough for you to be asking questions about Greece, except if you were Greek or cared about Greece particularly. The fact that Greece has been at the center of a financial storm for 10 years now uh, is just proof that there is uh, something the matter with our financial system more broadly. Take any bank today, any bank, and look at the percentage of its assets, of the loans it's given out, that has gone into business. It's zero. It's real zero. It's extremely low. Most banks now don't do the job of financial intermediation. Most people have this uh, false impression in their minds that banks are intermediaries between borrowers and lenders. But they're not. What they're doing is they're placing bets constantly on their own account. And um, on the side, if they have time, they do banking businesses as well. Well, that's separated now. No, they're that not at all separated. In which country are they separated? Uh, in the U.S.? No, that is not true. The Frank Dodd, Dodd no. It failed spectacularly to separate them. The Volcker rule it, it was meant to do it. Way. Well, take the Bank of America. The Bank of America is precisely as I described it. There is no Glass-Steagall Act. We have not gone back to the pre-Clinton years with the, the Glass-Steagall Act. We now have banks that um, 
have to keep separate accounts. Right. But when it comes to the crunch, there's no separation between their investment business and their standard banking business. So all that, that has happened, and this, I think, has been one of the thing of the conclusions that were drawn during the morning session today here at the OECD, is that we had cosmetic changes. And when the next crisis hits, we'll be in exactly the same situation. The only banks that have shrunk somehow are the European banks, because the, the American authorities said to them, if you want to do dollar business, you're going to shrink. So but at the same time, the American banks have grown. So, so they've, taken up, the they've, ta- are, they've taken up the slack. So you're saying the banks are still as much in control as they always have been. And the world of finance is are abso- more so than before. More so. It's not, look, this is not a question of moralizing. Mm-hmm. It's a question of being realistic. Uh, we have a financial world which is effectively breeding its own values, paper values. And uh, in the process, it is decoupling itself from real economic activity. That means the real economic activity, which is the base, it's the foundation, is increasingly having to bear the burden of a lot more financial activity. And at some point, like every child knows that if you keep piling uh, grains of sand onto other grains of sand, you will end up with a little hill of sand and it will at some point implode. And the question is, who's going to save us again after the next 2008? And I very much fear that the institutions of the states that were around in 2008 to do it, and they did a very bad job of it, but nevertheless did it. And by this I mean the Federal Reserve, the the U.S. Treasury, Mm -hmm. and the Chinese government Mm -hmm. are no longer uh, capable of doing it because of the way that politics has changed. And it makes coordination between them almost impossible. And then what about the European Central Bank? Well, the European Central Bank is um, a paradox. It was created as a paradox, and it remains a paradox. We have a central bank without a state to have its back, uh, and we have states and governments, 19 of them, without a central bank to have their back. Uh, This was the very curious and odd way that we created the monetary system. In other words, the Eurozone is like a beautiful riverboat that uh, looks fantastic when you launch it into the Pacific Ocean, when the weather is good. The first storm causes it to start leaking and to start sinking. Uh, The ECB has managed to refloat finance, but at the expense of creating toxic politics, which are now reaping apart the European Union. I think this will be my last question. And since we are ending on Europe, I'd like to ask you about your European movement. What are your proposals to deal with, for example, this problem with the European Central Bank? DiEM25, our movement, is um, utterly pragmatic and realistic. There is no way that we can convince Europeans that the solution is to redraft the charter of the European Central Bank because it simply can't be done, at least not in the next 10 years or five years for the matter. It takes uh, the agreement of 27 countries, at least the 19 of the Eurozone, parliaments, referenda, it just can't happen. So the question is, what can we do tomorrow morning to make a difference when it comes to these four crises, public debt, private debt, low investment, and poverty? So our proposal, a new deal for Europe, is based on reconfiguring the policies of the European Central Bank, the European Stability Mechanism, and the European Investment Bank, a lot of emphasis on the European Investment Bank, which is a splendid institution, in such a way as to create the synergies between them that will alleviate those four crises. Okay, so better cohesion between those institutions. No, 
it's not a question of cohesion. Mm-hmm. It's redeploying them as part of a new deal plan that has the specific intention of tackling those four crises and uses those four institutions as part of that plan. At the moment, there's no plan. This is just simply business as usual. In but the it Euro- would mean that Germany would have to go along with it because of course it would. Germany and France would be mostly financing a new deal. That is not true. Germany cannot finance anything. France cannot finance anything. We have the fiscal compact. We have stressed fiscally states, uh, not Germany, but um, even if Germany hit the the, 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 the the upper limits of the fiscal compact, it wouldn't be enough. We have a massive problem in, 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 in Europe. So let me just give you an example by which to illustrate it. It cannot be done through taxing and spending, but it can be done through, for instance, the European Investment Bank being given the green light by the European Union Council to issue 500 billion euros worth of bonds every year for five years. That's 5% of your area GDP for five years. That's mm-hmm. a substantial amount of money into, let's say, a green investment program. Um, this it can do today. You don't need to change the rules. Nobody has to pay any money. The EIB issues the bonds. And the EIB has been issuing bonds for 25 years. Right. And all you need is a statement by the European Union Council that they have the green light to do it and by President Mario Draghi that the European Central Bank will be standing behind those bonds in the secondary markets, which is already said because they're already buying EIB bonds in the secondary markets. So I'm not proposing anything new, just a change of order of magnitude. And also to create a new institution of the European Union that um, designs, let's say, a green energy union the investment, the R&D that needs to go in, the construction, um, something like what the OECD used to be in Europe in the 1950s, managing the Marshall aid money. Uh, so that way you have simulated a federation without a federation, and it has nothing to do with taxation. To the extent that as we speak, there's about two and a half to three trillion euros slashing around idly in the financial sector of Europe, doing nothing except bidding up house prices, asset prices, share prices, but not being invested. Those EIB bonds would be soaking up that liquidity so, mm-hmm. and converting that, that energizing that money into the things that Europe needs. No taxation, no France, no Germany having to pay for it. Well, that sounds more hopeful and optimistic. Thank you very much, Mr. Varoufakis. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. Mm-hmm.